0: make your garden twice as big this summer and get twice the harvest right now get two bonnie plants 2.32 quart vegetable and herb plants for only ten dollars they're ready to grow starter plants make growing vegetables and herbs at home easier than ever before make your garden twice as big this summer and enjoy homegrown fresh vegetables and herbs with bonnie plants two for just ten dollars feels like fourth of july savings at the home depot how doers get more done selection varies by store in store only not available offshore or alaska What is up movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony and I'm James and this is episode 42. We're gonna do post-apocalyptic and dystopian films including Mad Max Fury Road. Children of Men and Snowpiercer, and I, I hope if you're watching, you appreciate our new set that we've built. we got some new walls, we decorated for the holiday season to bring some festive cheer for this entire month of December, and really hope if you're checking it out that you enjoy what you're looking at right now besides our, our faces. <laughs> yeah, we're using the money we're getting from the podcast and from our Patreon to really make the set look as good as possible. And we love christmas so it's time to throw these lights up we thought and we love the holiday season is so fun so we'll be adding more and more to the sets but i hope you like these these wood walls these were look at these real anthony's genius idea let's put some actual wood up on the walls and And it it looks great and it feels good in here you know what? it looks like a real podcast now Yeah, it looks actually like (laughs) real yeah like a real show look at this we have moving walls and everything it's it's a production and a half now and um i'm a huge fan of post-apocalyptic films and dystopian future films they're so fascinating the stories too we selected three movies that are very different from each other, and we also got Mad Max is really the only post-apocalyptic world film in this list, whereas Children of Men and Snowpiercer are more dystopian. Snowpiercer, I would say, is post-apocalyptic. It's, it's, I think it's yeah. both, but um, Snowpiercer also has—dystopian generally means that there's like social structure, there's still people in uh, political control and some sort of uh, uh, hierarchy, whereas Mad Max is just pure mayhem. Yeah, um, like for like 1984 and like THX 1138, those films are, are dystopian. Mm-hmm. Children of Men is definitely dystopian. It, children of Men is a movie that's on the verge of post-apocalyptic, but yeah. it's technically children. It's te- technically dystopian. Yeah, absolutely. And these uh, films, they each have their own unique styles and voices and tones, and they blend different genres into the dystopian post-apocalyptic genre in different ways. So I think they, they're really uh, contrasted from one another, and I think they fit together on this list really well. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today just in time for the holiday season. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your order and free shipping. Again, take advantage of these coupon codes on these websites for the holiday season. I'm telling you, these are Great for gifts, you gotta get it done. Don't go to the stores with the crazy lines and the COVID restrictions, so definitely get your, get your gifts now, get it out of the way. Use these coupon codes. If you enjoy our podcast and our content and wanna help support us, the best thing you can do is become a patron on patreon.com where you get special perks like personalized video sneak peeks, and a monthly shout out on the podcast. Subscribing to our YouTube channel is incredibly beneficial for the full video format of the show. Also following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you listen a podcast is super helpful. Leaving a five-star review really helps us get seen by new listeners, so definitely do that if you get a chance. And the written reviews are so fun to read, so thank you to everyone who's done that. We love reading those comments and those messages from you. And make sure to hit the notifications wherever you're listening or watching so you know when new episodes drop every Monday and Thursday. Hit that bell button. And as always, spoilers are abound. The first episode in this film is Mad Max Fury Road, which was released in 2015, directed by George Miller, written by George Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nick Lothoris. This film had a budget of $150 million and a global box office of $375 million. In a post-apocalyptic wasteland, a woman rebels against a tyrannical ruler in search for her homeland with an aid of a group of female prisoners, a psychotic worshiper, and a drifter named Max. This film stars Charlize Theron, Tom Hardy, Nicholas Holt, Hugh Keyes-Byrne, Zoe Kravitz, Rosie huntington Wheatley, and Nathan Jones. This film was nominated for 10 Oscars and won six, including Best Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hair, Best Sound Editing, and Best Production Design. And this is one of the most visually stunning films and unique films in recent years. And one of my f- favorite ways to describe it is it's just pure insanity on an epic scale. The concept, the the visuals, the action, it's just crazy awesome. Yeah, I think everyone was taken by surprise when George Miller came out with this film because it had been a while since he had made a, Ma- a Mad Max. And before this, he made Happy Feet. Not only is this a uh, hands down one of the best action films ever made but like you said it was nominated for 10 oscars and i think it it showed the potential that uh, an action film can be great and revered as a, a piece of cinema the idea of the straight-up action film being nominated for best picture yeah it's a rare rare action jewel in this genre like there're not many action movies straight up action movies that are nominated for best picture i mean i think the most famous one besides this is Raiders of the Lost Ark i'm pretty sure that was nominated for best picture but I mean, again that's spielberg so it's an expert director not saying that george miller is not a brilliant director but like you just said he he coming off the mad max franchise in the 80s he really did um that the last witches or the witches of eastwick mm-hmm. um, he did Uh, Babe, pig in the big city and he did the two happy feet movies so he kind of slowed down as a director he didn't do a ton of projects and i feel like he's just been developing this project for the last 25 years yeah and the reason for that is the mad max um films with mel gibson they were successful but they weren't like crazy hits so he never was given a, a ton of money by studios to make gigantic films and he i think he really enjoys making animated films which is why he did happy feet And he actually wanted to make originally envisioned this movie to be an animated 3D animated Mad Max movie um when he was in development on this in the early 2000s and it took him 20 years to get this movie made from the concept of the idea to the actual production of the film so it was and he was almost in production on it with Mel Gibson originally set to star but the uh, financial crisis hit and put a halt on any kind of production so we had to Go back to a Happy Feet sequel instead of making this film. Yeah, he wanted Mel Gibson to reprise the role, I think, in the early 2000s. Then he was th- thinking about Heath Ledger as the lead when they, he was trying to get it developed again. And I think he came. they said he came up with the original concept for the movie in 1998, which they, he had to rewrite because of 9-11, he says. So they wrote an entirely new script. So I'm sure that something about the world was just different, and he had to change the political themes of it, I'm sure. And he made the original Mad Max in 1979, which starred Mel Gibson. And it launched a franchise of three films that Mel Gibson starred in as the title character. And now, obviously, it's being rebooted because we have Mad Max Fury Road. We have the Furiosa spinoff that's going to be made starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Taylor and then Tom Hardy's actually signed on to three more Mad Max films. So he's going to be in another Mad Max spinoff in that direction, following that character still. And you can tell that Miller clearly had the the vision of something enormous and vast Um in the 70s and 80s, but he couldn't really do it with the budget he was working with. Like you said, he didn't have much to work with. The first film was $300,000 budget. That's inflated. It was 100000 in the time they made it. And the second film had a budget of $3 million, and the third film had a budget of $10 million. So if you think about it, the first three installments of this franchise that Miller made, he had less than a tenth of the budget that he worked with on the Mad Max Fury Road movie. Yeah, Fury Road had a budget total of about $150 million, and then another $60 million or so for marketing costs. So. It had a huge amount of money behind it, which is what gave Miller the freedom to really show the true vision he had for these movies. And you can see the potential from the first couple of films. But with this, he had had all the resources he needed at his disposal, and they spent seven months shooting this in the desert. And I think that this film is unique because it is uh, the purest sense of an action movie that has ever been made, where if you think about it, this movie is just an action sequence. It's just a chase from start to finish. Right when Max is taken captive by the war boys until the end of the film, it's pretty much a nonstop chase. And he expanded the chase sequence into two hours. And Miller, he again, he has this insane vision that he couldn't have made 30 years ago. And he's kind of like the Romero of... The zombie genre, he's the Romero of, of the apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic genre. Where he basically wrote the the rules for this genre and helped create it what it was. And obviously you still see similarities between modern post-apocalyptic films that are trying to grasp what Mad Max has created in those those early films, Like especially like The Rover and The Book of Eli. They look just like Mad Max, you know, this barren wasteland of people, scavengers fighting and just trying to survive. But he also makes it uh, look very unique from any other dystopian post-apocalyptic film before it because the style he used in this film he 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 shot it with extremely saturation, very high levels of saturation and color and he did that on purpose because he wanted Mad Max Fury Road to look different from any other apocalyptic dystopian movie and all of those other movies in the genre, they're desaturated, they're very bleak in color uh, and they're very uh, muted but with Mad Max Fury Road, it's super saturated, there are extreme um, extremely high levels of Oranges, blues, reds, and it's it's just the the colors just pop on the screen unlike anything you've seen before in this genre And I think that really sets it apart because every scene you can really see the deep blue of the sky Contrasted with the orange sand of the desert and it's beautiful And then the nighttime shots which we'll get into later on are even incredibly vibrant blues too And I think it's just the perfect metaphor of this entire film uh, aesthetically what we're about to see Another day is here and you're ready for it What to wear? Check Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check Mad Max's opening line, where he's like, my name is Max, and my world is fire. So, like, that's what he says, right? Yeah. So it, it just opens up that we're going to see something very colorful and obviously less of that desaturated look that we usually see in more bleak, post apocalyptic films. Yeah, and it's actually a great way to keep the audience engaged because orange and blue, the two main colors of this movie, they're on opposite sides of the color wheel, so they're very engaging to the eye of of humans, and they keep us uh, our attention on the screen and... It's in the marketing, it's in all the shots, this contrast of these colors. And I think it just looks fantastic. And it's, it's the cinematography in this movie is unbelievable. And I, I, it's kind of absurd when you watch this movie to think that they actually filmed all of these action set pieces because this is probably the most impressive uh, film to showcase stunt work ever made. The vast majority of the stunt work, of the action, of the, the crashes, of the cars, of the fight scenes, is real in-camera work that they did. It's not CGI. They use CGI to mani- manipulate the images in ways of uh, changing the color palette, of of changing the landscape of the desert. So the deserts they shot in, they weren't exactly like that. They had to literally paint with CGI new backgrounds to make it look a little more expansive and to fit the needs of the vision. And also they changed mountain ranges. They changed uh, rock formations to to help with the script. Like that, that scene where they get trapped within that... Um, Within that valley, that tight valley, that most of that CGI, and they just uh, added that in, and so, and also the citadel is obviously all CGI, but. Otherwise, there's everything that you see is shot in camera, which is why it looks so impressive because when a car crashes or explodes, it's a real explosion. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Again, it's the holiday season. you got to get your gift shopping done. Do it early so you don't have to stress about it in mid-December. Manscaped.com is the perfect place to get gifts for all the men in your life. You got a boyfriend, a husband, brother, siblings, uh, cousins, uncles, aunts, your father. I'm telling you, any guy would love any product from Manscaped. We got their performance packages. They sent us their briefs, t-shirts. Their cologne smells fantastic. Like, I actually I don't wear cologne, but I kind of dig this cologne a lot. Their lawnmower is the best buzzer I've ever used in my life. It's got a light on it. It's waterproof. The Weed Whacker is a great way to, you know, subtly tell your the men in your life that they need to trim up uh, specific spots like their nose hairs and ear hairs. So it's you know, you gotta groom. We gotta groom. It's part of life. We're human beings. We've we got hair grown everywhere. So Manscaped.com. Use Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This was a 7 month shoot in the desert of Namibia. The stunt crew was trained by Cirque du Soleil so they truly deserve a ton of recognition for this film as as much as they can get because in no other movie will you see stunt actors doing what they're doing in this film where they're just driving high speed high speed uh, these crazy rigs these cars and they're just Exploding cars everywhere. there There's fire everywhere. There's just that high eight octane diesel everywhere. They're jumping from car to car, and it's just incredibly impressive. And these stunt men and these stunt women are just insane maniacs who deserve all the credit in the world. He really upped the ante with what you can do in action. And like we said, we've said previously, the people can tell when CGI is on screen and when something isn't real. And I think the reason why this movie is so effective is because we can tell that all these cars, all these motorcycles, all these rigs—they're—they're they're real. They're tangible, and they're not—they're not made from computer graphics animation. And they actually have the actors on them and the stunt people on them. And it's—I think it's so impressive, and that's why the movie works because we know it's real. And again, I keep talking about this vision that. George Miller had that only really he could probably see and his graphic artists could see and his storyboards could see because I think he storyboarded it with a graphic novelist uh, designer. A few, a team yeah, of so, them. So the illustrations are phenomenal for what they, they came up with before they filmed. But again, they made about 3,000 storyboards. Yeah, but Tom Hardy and Charlie Theron, they were known for on set. They, they had doubts about the production and were curious. They maybe didn't fully understand what exactly they were making, what kind of film they were making because, again, they're in the desert for seven months filming who knows what they were doing for, for seven months' explosions and cars and chases. They were probably thinking, like, what is the story of this entire film? And I, I read that Hardy was even quoted as saying that he had apologized to Miller for when he first saw the movie and he finally understood the vision that Miller had for the entire film. You can understand and empathize with what they were going through because obviously, like we said, they painted a lot of the backgrounds to change the backgrounds from what they were shooting in. So the deserts that they were shooting in, they weren't as impressive and as expansive As we saw in the film, they were uh, very simple deserts, and they were just outside of a village, and outside of that, uh, outside of that city. And in terms of being an actor on that set, where you're 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 spending like months just sitting in the the front seat of a truck, and Miller is handling the entire production of all these stunt teams and coordinations, and he knows what the movie's going to look like when it's all done. But when you're the actor on set, you can't you maybe don't have this. You can't understand the vision. That the director has in terms of not just what he's shooting but what he's going to add to the scenes and what he's going to add visually after the fact of shooting yeah so i i completely understand that like myopic sense of feeling for the film and not being able to see the full vision of it so i totally get what they were going through again seven months shoot in the desert and then margaret sixel was the editor of this film and she's george miller's wife And she won the Oscar for best editing this film, and he chose her to do this despite never editing an action film before because he wanted to look not like every other action movie that's come out. Because you could easily see how someone could have turned this movie into just looking like this great action film but not transcendent like the way it was. And I think the editing by Margaret Sixel is one of the most important aspects of this film. It's, It's sensational editing, some of the best you'll ever see, and... Uh, she had 470 hours of footage to go through before she started editing, which took three months to view and catalog. That's a lot of footage. And it, it really pays off because uh, the editing is different from act- other action films because it's not a lot of cuts. Uh, she holds on to shots for a while before she cuts them. It's not back and forth, back and forth. You'll, you'll the, sec- the, the Each shot, is a couple of seconds or a few seconds, even in the most intense action scenes. So she takes her time with the editing. And that vision also translates into the story as well because there are a lot of uh, feminist themes in Mad Max Fury Road. I think the main character is not actually Max. The main character is Furiosa and her story along with uh, trying to save the the wives of Immortan Joe. And I think that it, it has a lot of feminist themes in terms of uh, a woman's identity and being in control of her own body and being in control of her own life and not allowing men to, to decide their their um, fates in life and I think that those are the strongest themes that resonate for me in the film. Yeah, I think he, I read that he had the writer of the Vagina Monologues was a consultant on the script for this film to really give that strong female voice and the feminist voice to this film and the characters, which clearly comes across. And it also uh, displays the social themes of uh, of power and how Morton Joe, because he controls the water, he he has control of the most important resource, and so he controls the people. And they've become desperate and and they live just they live each day trying to get as much water as they can from Joe, from Joe when he releases the water for a short amount of time and the the power he has over these people he abuses it and it can be definitely seen in the world today of people who have power and abuse their powers over the citizens of their of their lands. Which is something we'll commonly see in these dystopian post apocalyptic films. And in Morton Joe is just this terrifying character, but despite being like this god that he's created himself into for these people of the desert and the war boys that he commands, he's physically very weak and he can he can barely even stand up without Or survive without his life support and his breathing mask and whatever he's got going on like his darth vader-esque costume and um which i think he makes look terrifying on purpose because that hides the true weakness of him internally from everybody else that's why he's got a very scary mask and his body and his body armor has like it's just like ripped and chiseled and he looks way more intimidating than he probably actually is behind the mask yeah and miller shows a a shot of his body from behind and it's it, it looks like he's dying and his body is weak and he's got like warts and cysts all over him and you're right he he covers himself with this armor that makes him look more fierce and intimidating because the only way he's able to maintain his power is through fear and fear is the most motivating uh, emotion you can put within people to make them bend at your will. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our good friends at movieposters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. It's the holiday season. It's time to get all your gifts, all your presents. I'm sure you have some movie-loving friends and family members out there. Getting them a gift from movieposters.com is the best thing you can get them using the coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order right now at checkout. They offer great designs like plaque designs, original designs, framing, backlight, canvas. Definitely check them out. movieposters.com Raiders fifteen for fifteen percent off your order. And Hugh keyes byrne plays in Morton Joan. He's the actor who also played the lead villain in the first Mad Max movie. And again, Furiosa. This she's the lead character in this film. It's her story. She has the master plan. She's the one who makes the courageous decision to to free the villain's uh, concubine and his his uh breeders these women he has oppressed their entire lives and controlled their entire lives Um, and she's the one that takes the lead of this story and it's great because obviously Mad Max is the name of the franchise you call it like the it's like Star Wars it's the title of the franchise in the world and then it's just I I love Miller taking that and flipping on its head where he just uses it as the moniker of the brand obviously Max in this movie too but having the strong female lead of this action movie With one arm, total badass, shaved head, just flips the action genre on its head, especially what you probably expected to happen with when you hear Tom when when we heard Tom Hardy got cast as Max and like obviously Charlize Charlize Theron we knew would be in it too, but you assumed that Max would be the lead character or this of this movie and he would be the it would be his storyline, but it's all Furiosa. And I it actually I don't think Max could be the lead of this film. It wouldn't work because he's reached a point in his life where. He's been living in this dystopian hellhole for so long, and he's become this this lone ranger in a way. He's he's given up on trying to help people. He's given up on trying to insert himself into the lives of others, and he's just literally reached this point where he's just trying to survive day by day and nothing else, and it, from the size of his beard and his hair when we first see him, it, he's probably been alone for, for years now, and so I don't think he's mentally or, or emotionally able to— uh, have it any kind of uh, any kind of his own story or or goal to achieve because he doesn't have a goal anymore. It's just survival, and that's why Furiosa has to be the lead of this film because she has a goal and she has a, a journey that she's trying to um, uh, overcome, and that's why it has to the move this movie and story have to, has to center on her character. Yeah, Max is shaped by the world he lives in. You can tell he at one point in his life was probably a decent and moral man. But again, he's forced to live with just one purpose in his life, and that is to survive, which he brings up multiple times. Yeah, he was decent before the first film when he was just a cop, but then his family was killed, and that was the first uh, nail in the coffin for his humanity. And now he's just reached this point where he's barely human. Yeah, and I think the biggest uh, criticism I've heard of this film is Max's minimal dialogue. And as we've said it many times in the show, you don't need dialogue to tell a story. You don't. And Mad Max, Max says 52 lines total of dialogue and some of those lines are like one word, two words. Tom Hardy does a whole a lot of grunting in this movie too. But I mean, I don't mind it at all. That's just part of the performance. That's part of who Max is now. He's been living by himself. He hasn't had anyone to talk to and he's really just probably just have, He has that mentality where he doesn't want to trust anybody. So that's why he has minimal dialogue in this entire film and he's plagued with these constant memories and visions of his past of all these people who he couldn't help or he couldn't save and He's been haunted by that for, for where he is now. And the little girl in particular that's constantly coming up in his visions, they explain in, in one of the prequel comic books that came out after the film that he was a little girl that he couldn't save. Also, his behavior is a little weird at first, like his facial tics, and he often grunts instead of speaking because, like you said, he's been on his own for so long. It's like being stuck on a desert island for years and then returning to people and you don't really know how to socialize. So you're socially he's socially awkward, and he's forgotten how to, like, interact with people i mean he's just been driving around in his car for years in the desert so clearly he wouldn't be someone who's gonna go off on these lengthy monologues and, or have a great personality so it makes sense for the character where he is in his life to not have that much to say as opposed to the mel gibson films where he actually does have a lot to say whereas furiosa her soul and her hope are what drives this entire film and drives the storyline. She's like the only source of humanity we 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 see but her in in the in the breeders that she helps escape. And her final desperate attempt is to in life is to save these innocent women and return to her home of the green world. And it's something that she's clearly been planning for a long time and she's going to follow through with it no matter how suicidal or, or how improbable it'll be to pull off. And she's just desperate to see, a new step for humanity. Maybe a new generation of people lived living in more equality and trying to build something more, rather than living in that godlike control of Immortan Joe at the Citadel. Yeah, and Furiosa, in her hope, in her drive, is the is the main force that changes Max as a character. Because um, when this film starts, Max believes that he needs to just be on his own and, and be alone and just survive and. He doesn't want to help anyone. He doesn't want anyone's help. And then, uh, his the first chance he gets. He abandons Furiosa and the woman because he still just he believes he needs to just be alone to survive. But obviously, she set that that um the settings on the truck to um kill make switch. it to the kill switch is on the truck, so he can't go. And then again later in the film, Max has the opportunity to just leave on a motorcycle and and, and abandon these people. And and so it's because of Furiosa that Max decides to not only help these people but. Come up with a plan and ends up putting his life in danger to help these people so she changed his character and he transformed because of her yeah he transforms from just a survivor to a redeemer and something more he chooses to put his life on the line to save the woman and help them get back to the citadel he uses his blood when he was already short on blood from the beginning of the story it being a blood bank to one of the war boys to gives his blood to furiosa despite how I don't think it's scientifically accurate just because you're a universal donor that your blood can give to anyone. I think there's a little more uh, biology involved, but still, it's it's fun to to let that go. But um, I think one of the most fascinating parts of this film to me are are the War Boys of Immortan Joe, and these characters they're just visually just incredibly in- disturbing and intriguing at the same time. Where they they just covered in this pale white, they're bald, they have blackened eyes, they 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 look incredibly. Weak and sick because they're clearly from this world of radiation and their half lives, which they get called multiple times Meaning they're probably gonna die in their early 30s, maybe a little sooner And they're clearly going through some sort of leukemia or cancer some cancer of the blood I think that's what leukemia is and you can tell they have cancer obviously from the tumors around their necks and all over their bodies And just how visibly sick they are and they need these blood banks to survive to the to the fullest extent of their final parts of their lives, which is where Max and Nux kind of become a pair in the beginning of the film, as Nux uses Max as this blood bank to survive during this battle where they're going to track down Furiosa. Yeah, Nicholas Hoult is great in this movie, and the War Boys are they're intensely devoted to Morten Joe as more of a spiritual, religious god or de- deity to to them, and. He's convinced these people that if they die defending him in in his world, then they'll be welcomed into Valhalla. That's that's the greatest honor a war boy can achieve, and it's, it's this really great image where before they sacrifice themselves, they they spray paint that that, s- that silver chrome all over their mouth and teeth. I think that when they do that, they it, it could be a drug that gets them high, and it's kind of like uh, euphoric for them. And so that that allows them to feel more willing to sacrifice themselves as well. So when they're spray painting their faces, I think they're getting high doing that. Oh, absolutely, because it's chrome paint, so you're going to get pretty pretty buzzed <laughs> off that. And also it's like they worship V8, the deity, the D eight of high octane and gasoline and guzzoline. And mm-hmm. like you said, they have that that belief that they'll enter Valhalla. And I think in Warboy, Nuck says that line, I live, I die, I live again. So they have this belief that if they follow Immortan Joe's philosophy they'll live forever basically yeah which is obviously common in a lot of different organizations that we've seen do horrible things in the world so the, the this world is filled with incredible characters and in it. it's such a unique vision it's endlessly entertaining there are a couple major set pieces of action in this film that are just so stunning incredible and whenever i watch this movie i, I literally feel my heart rate pounding because it's so intense and it, it's exciting to see uh these these vehicles and and this stunt work, and it, it's it harkens back to the old style of filmmaking where it's not just all CGI and special effects and and animation. It's it's real actors and stunt people and really driving these cars. And it just and also Miller gets so ridiculous with it at times and like tongue in cheek, like having that that crazy guitar player with a flame dr- flamethrower on the end of the guitar, which was real. Yeah, it was a real flamethrower, and and the drummers with the giant speakers. So it's it's a little ridiculous in a good way but i think what really again ties it all together is the editing because in going back to margaret sixle and her editing she'll she'll focus on there's so many different action sequences going on at the same time in all of these these chase scenes you know each part of the truck has a little fight going on and there's people constantly trying to jump on the trucks and she does a great job not staying too long on each one of these sequences where normally we'll see like an action scene and two people will fight for like what feels like three minutes she's bouncing around with. With these great cutting techniques Where we're seeing here real quick We're not seeing too much of what's happening in the front deck uh, we'll see, We're seeing this other person coming from the side Attacking the truck So she's she's great job at like flowing through the entire scene To give us a, a quick glimpse of everything that's going on You're absolutely right You're able to process everything Even though there's so many moving parts And there's so many people involved in, in every action sequence You're never confused So you're absolutely right I think that's why she won the Oscar Because she keeps you in the, in the film And she keeps you uh, informed and able to process the, the, the situations and, and the action that's happening in front of you. And you talked about the beautiful aesthetic of these these deserts, and they're so vibrant and so red and and colorful, and then it's perfectly contrasted with these night sequences, which are so blue and also vibrant, which normally when uh, people, you'll see a night sequence, it's very dark, but the way they did this, it's, it's not super common anymore, but Miller filmed these night sequences in pure daylight. It's called Day for Night Filmmaking, and all these shots, again, broad daylight so you can see everything. And obviously, people don't do this very often because it would be great to film more at night, but cameras and film stocks not as sensitive as the human eye, so you can't really pick up uh, what you can really see as a person, despite it's getting better and better every year. A lot of cameras nowadays are pretty much practically seeing in the dark as it is. But they, what they did to film these is they overexposed the shots and then... They desaturated a little bit, and just added so much blues and colors to these nighttime sequences. And and the the benefit of overexposing these shots is the darks and the shadows aren't clipping to black, and you can actually see a lot of detail in there. It's almost like you can see um, the same way that nocturnal animals can see at nighttime. And the I think the reason why uh, pe- filmmakers don't really use this technique is because uh, what what happened in this film and what miller does is like you said he desaturates the image and then he adds a lot of blue and what that does is it takes away all the other colors from the image so all you see is blue the entire image on every every person every article of clothing it's all blue 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 whereas if you filmed it at nighttime it would be yeah a cooler image but then you'd still see the other colors in the scene um, and so i think that it works in this film because in the daylight you get so much orange and brown from the desert. It's, and, and a lot of the clothing of the characters is, is, is it matches the, the tones and colors of the of the desert itself. And so you're able to contrast that by making the nighttime scenes all blue. And so that's why I think it works because it's, really con- it's a great contrast of the orange and blue and day and night. Yeah, I don't think this will really work in other films. It's just because this film aesthetically looks like a graphic novel. It's so vibrant, so colorful, so it's Obviously will work to contrast the daytime with very colorful and bright night times And Furiosa is faced with a horrible dilemma and realization that when she finds the other woman from her green world where she grew up In that this place, the green place, just like everything else in the world has died And they have no other option And obviously Mad Max comes up with the idea to go straight back to the Citadel Come back with the way they came It's unprotected and to take it over and to beat uh, Morton Joe there and then there's that great action sequence where they do uh, encounter Immortan Joe and his, and his, and his crew. They do get away and they make it to the Citadel. And what they find is that the people at the Citadel, uh, they're happy that Immortan Joe has been killed. And they celebrate his death. And even uh, the other members of Joe's circle decide to let Furiosa up and welcome her instead of Immortan Joe because they know it would endanger themselves because the public is, is so elated at his death. In the War Boy Nux, he goes through an incredible character transformation where he becomes an ally to the woman and to Max, into Furiosa, and he ends up sacrificing himself to save the other woman. Yeah, because his philosophies and everything he's been taught, he's learning is uh, is is false and and not true, and he's just being used by Morton Joe. And there's obviously some major themes going on in this film uh, related to our current world in terms of you know water conservation and renewable energy and using resources efficiency efficiently and. War for oil and maybe there's going to be a war for water someday and how to try to avoid those those problems that we're going to eventually run to at some point because, you know, this this world only has so many resources and it keeps growing in terms of population. So we're going to have to try to take better care of what's going on in our in our day-to-day lives. And it's, it's also similar to, it reminds me of Ready Player One, whereas in terms of it's not oil and water, it's bandwidth and like the whole <laughs> um, war for the internet And kind of like living, they have to live their world in that virtual reality. So it kind of reminds me, and that's also dystopian post-apocalyptic world too. So Mm. it reminds me of Ready Player One in some ways. Yeah. And water is a resource that in 50 years, it could be in extremely limited supply unless something is done. And I know a lot of people talk about just climate change and oil and, and natural fossil fuels, but water is a resource that could be in great danger in the coming decades. And this film... Is based upon the idea of water running out across the world and, and the reason why morton joe has powers because he has the water and that could end up happening one day it's so ironic because the majority of the planet is underwater just gotta figure out how to get all that salt out efficiently <laughs> you can do that but it's too ex- the the machinery re- required is uh far too expensive to be able to make enough of it that would supply fresh water to people on earth so it's an inf- it's an unfeasible way to solve that problem. It's all about uh, trying to preserve uh, the fresh water on Earth. Mad Max: Fury Road is a sensational film. Absolutely blew my expectations out of the water. Um, it's really fun time. It's it, George Miller doesn't take his foot off the pedal from the moment the film begins, and it's it's a great action film, one of the best in the genre ever. Yeah, this is one of the greatest action movies ever made, and it's gonna stand the test of time for sure, and it's gonna set the stage for what you can do for with action in the future. Next up, we have Children of Men, released in 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, written by Alfonso Cuaron, Timothy J. Sexton, David Arada, Mark Fergus, and Hawk Otsby, based on the book by P.D. James. This film had a budget of $76 million and a global box office of $70 million. In 2027, in a chaotic world in which women have become somehow infertile, a former activist agrees to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to a sanctuary at sea. This film stars Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chu el Claire Hope Ashti, and Charlie Hunnam. This is one of my favorite movies, hands down. And we've talked about Quaran uh, a couple of times with Azkaban and with Gravity. He also made Roma, the Itumama Tambien. I could compare him to a Stanley Kubrick-type figure in filmmaking because he doesn't make that many movies, but every movie he makes... Is extremely impactful and, and powerful. Obviously, they have very different styles and aesthetics. But I think what uh, Alfonso Cuarón does with his filmmaking is uh, he always transports you into this into the movies, unlike any other filmmaker before. He 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 helped bring the sense of realism to uh, American cinema because his his Mexican films he made before he made. American films, uh, they also used a a lot of handheld work and a lot of long takes, and obviously he inspired filmmaking in the early and mid-2000s for Americans to bring the realism to their cinema, and it's different from the realism of French cinema, where they began using very long takes, but they weren't using handheld too often, and Claron really brought handheld filmmaking to the scene of America, but... A lot of people think that adding realism handheld is the only thing that makes things feel realistic in film. But it's the combination of handheld camera work along with very long takes that really transport you into a scene and make it feel like real life. Because uh, his theory is that life doesn't have cuts and life doesn't have edits. And so the longer you can hold on a scene the The more it transports the audience into the the moment with the characters inside of the film. Yeah, the the handheld, of course, shoulder mounted handheld, which isn't super common uh, in a ton of films. Obviously, you'll see handheld, but it's usually some sort of cam or or some, some. They'll even make it handheld yeah, on purpose. Some, some sort of rig to make it a little smoother. But there's a lot of shaky handheld in this film, which. He actually gets a shot of this in Prisoner of Azkaban when Harry opens the door. It's the mm. only shot that's handheld in that movie in Shaky Handheld because obviously it's the paying homage to his style. But Koran really pioneered this, this style that's reached modern Hollywood of realism and handheld. And this film was one of those movies in my youth that really changed my perception on film and really helped me develop a true passion and love of movies. And it's a true modern masterpiece. One of my favorite movies made this century, one of my favorite movies ever. And I think. Alfonso, this is the best film I think in his career still, even with how good Roma is and everything. And it's possibly also the most underrated and most underappreciated film ever made. I mean, it was a commercial flop. It grossed $70 million with on a budget of 76 million. At Oscar time, it was mostly overlooked. It only earned three nominations and none for acting, directing, or best picture, which is blowing my mind. Just it's crazy thinking about that. And um the studio never really figured out how to sell it. Uh, I I think they didn't understand really what it was or how good it actually was, and you know the the biggest pull to the movie, you know, Clive Owen wasn't a massive movie star at the time. He was in Closer. A couple he was of years just before. big in Europe. Yeah, uh, Julianne Moore is the big draw. She's the star in the movie, and she uh, spoiler gets killed within 28 minutes of the movie. And it debuted at Venice Film Festival and got a standing ovation, obviously because of how good it is. But still, it they they chose other films to prop up as their uh bait for Oscar picks. Uh, I think they did United 93 was their big option to go for to try to get best picture nominations and this left Quran very frustrated because he put so much into this movie. He put his entire basically career on the line with this movie and it obviously didn't make a lot of money and I th- I think I read that he had very intense and difficult years of his life after making this because It really put him down a dark rabbit hole because he probably was limited in what he could do after this. I don't think people understood what this movie had in it. It was very much ahead of its time. And the reason why it's become such a revered classic is because I think it takes repeated viewings of this movie to really fully digest what Koran put into it because there's so much substance in the story. It's not just a, it's not just a, a, on the surface, it's a very, it's a simple story, but there's so much depth to it in terms of, religious symbolism, uh, artistic symbolism, uh, humanity, uh, the themes uh, themes of the world, of the crises of the world that we're facing today, like uh, immigration and, and refugee crises in the Middle East and and the lack of resources and, and uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, the COVID pandemic. This film came out in 2006, and it, the film is set in 2027. And in this film, they... They detail that in 2020, in this world, uh, a viral pandemic spread across the entire globe and changed the Earth. And this this movie came out in 2006, so they literally predicted something like that would happen. And great philosophers have stated that civilization can end very quickly and very easily if a a few certain things happen in terms of uh, uh, global catastrophes. And this film is the result of a, of a few global catastrophes in terms of the lack of, the, the lack of fertility among humans, as well as the spread of pandemics, viral pandemics, and the spread of anarchy throughout various countries across the earth. And so all of these uh, catastrophes and crises culminated in the world that these characters live in now. And also uh, constant war, mm-hmm. warring countries to mass war is one of the main points, one of the main turning points of this world and what led to the destruction of basically modern society where now Britain is really the only country, despite how unhinged it is, that has some sort of stability. It shows you news headlines throughout the entire film. You see various, uh, it'll be in newspapers, it'll it'll be on television. And some of the media news headlines you see in this film are Africa devastated by nuclear fallout, U.S. troops at full attack, militias occupy Cincinnati, Russia in crisis, bombing of Saudi pipeline disrupts world oil supply, war and famine lead to mass migration, all foreigners now illegal. And so these are headlines that they seem like they, they are absolute possibilities, especially after uh, dealing with the last year within 2020 of things that could happen in the future and all it takes is is uh, a combination of uh, catastrophes and conflicts to, to to spin the world into chaos. And I think Quran opens this film up brilliantly. Where he so effectively shows you this world that you're living in and the toll it's taken on citizens And he opens it up in that cafe with all these people these citizens just in line But they're just entranced by what's happening on the news where they're talking about how the youngest person alive Who was the most famous person on earth was killed stabbed to death because he wouldn't sign an autograph And he died at 18 years old which means the youngest person who was alive is dead and He contrasts this with these people watching this program and they all have this look of despair and this loss of hope, which is the main theme of the film. Hope is the main theme of Children of Men. And he shows you the loss of hope in these people's faces. And then also he shows the lead character, Theo, doesn't even care what's on the news. He just walks through all these people, orders a coffee, leaves this cafe, walks 10 steps, and then there's an explosion right behind him. So he's just showing you this messed up world and how dark it is and how the will to live has basically not fully left human beings, but it's pretty close to leaving everybody's spirit. Exactly. And this opening scene is also a brilliant one take. And... Quaran does two things to, to show Theo as a, a, a character Who's uh, different from everyone else in the cafe And the first one you already mentioned Is that he has no reaction To baby Diego's death And for the general public Baby, baby Diego's death is the, the death of hope He was the last line of hope that humanity had Because he was the last baby that was born and Theo is a character. He already has no hope. He's complete. He, he he lost his hope before humanity lost their hope because he he had a child who died years previously. So that put him on this downward spiral of nihilism and and thinking that life has no meaning. And so he's already wave. He's already gone in hope in terms of hope. And so that's why he has no reaction to Baby Diego. And also, Cuaron being a great director and blocker, in order to make Theo stand out for the audience when we're watching this film all the all the background actors in this cafe they're actually cast purposely because they're very short and so when clive owen stands beside all these characters he's much taller than him so the audience is grab their eyes gravitate towards him so we already know immediately this person's important and this person is different from everyone else in the scene and so that's a little a subtle hint of blocking in in production design to show us the audience that CEO, Clive Owen is an important character And these, these handheld Shots and these long takes are incredibly infect- Effective at Bringing realism to the film like we've talked About and that's The main benefit of it but also there Is a con to it where it Requires an incredible amount of blocking like You just explained and time so It's really it takes a toll On a film crew it takes a, a toll On a director and the producers spending So much time spending so many hours just to get These one shots and the movie uses several lengthy shot sequences. The longest of these is a 3 minute and 19 second scene, one take of Key giving birth. Um, the 4 minute and 7 second ambush on the country road of the car driving. And the end of the film has that incredible 6 minute, and 18 second long take of Theo gets captured by the fishes, escapes, and runs down, runs down a street through a building of a raging battle. So... These are incredibly complex scenes, and Koran and Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer, are, are expertly craft these sequences into highly detailed scenes. Where, yeah, it's just one camera, one take, but they're getting so many different kinds of shots. They're getting close-ups, they're getting reactions, they're getting wide shots. So all these, not even just them, but the the characters and the actors have to be on their A game, and they really have to plan this out because they all have to react perfectly because it's it's a giant play, really, one take. Yeah, it's just like theater where the actors and the crew, they rehearse over and over and over again, and then they have like two days to film. And the reason why it's so effective is, is because because of the way they shoot it with this guerrilla-style documentary-ish uh, context and visual aesthetic. It makes it feel like these long takes are are improvised and they're not planned, and it makes it seem like we're just following theo and the others and we're we're reacting rather than the camera work already being knowing what they're doing the 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 crew and the actors so it makes it feel like everything is fresh and like it's really happening before our eyes rather than it being like perfectly choreographed even though it is choreographed the way they film it makes it seem very uh spontaneous and that's how we experience the world we don't experience the world in cuts yeah we blink our eyes and look in different directions but we're really experiencing these Internal long takes and that's what we're watching. That's why it feels so much like real life watching these entirely long Extremely long long takes that really show you the world and show this world that Quran's created I think one of the most uh, powerful parts of the film is that If you think about it the re- this movie takes all of the the problems and tragedies and and crises and conflicts of third-world nations in terms of like extreme poverty uh, refugee crises, uh, immigration crises, dominating government. And they it brings all these third world problems into a first world nation like England. And so it allows people who, like us, who grew up and live in first world countries to 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 finally see firsthand what it would be like if our societies fell under the same problems that third world countries suffer under. And it's really fascinating. And much of the filmmaking, yes, we're following these characters and Quran does these following shots to make it seem like you're just following Theo around, you're following these characters around, and he wanted to make it seem like you just took your own camera, and it's documentary style at times, but also, he likes to take the attention away from the storyline, and away from the characters, and show you what's happening in the world, what's happening in the background, you know, he gets so many shots of just the buildings, and rubble, and the background actors, and billboards people in cages what they're saying yeah the refugee detainee cages even the buses with barred windows and, and the graffiti and everything all this builds this horrifying bleak world of just again the loss of hope and the destruction of human civilization it makes the world more uh, believable it could, because it feels like we're documenting the world not just the characters not just the actors but uh, when he moves the camera away from the ca- when when a director moves the camera away from the actors, it's for a reason, and the purpose for this is to to make it feel like we're inhabiting this world and we're observing not just the story but the the world they're set in. This film does a great job of of showing the different ways in which people can react to to catastrophes and conflicts like this, and each main character in this film has a different reaction to the infertility crisis, and Theo himself, we already talked about. He's nihilistic and he's completely hopeless. And he he was hopeless before the crisis happened, and that's why he thinks that there's no there, there's no future for mankind. And he thinks that the mission that Julian asks him to carry out is pointless. And there's it, it, he doesn't he has no interest in helping the human project and helping Key out at first. And then Julian, his ex-wife. Her reaction has been she's spent the last couple of decades continuing her fight against the government uh, by becoming a, a leader within the terrorist organization. And Jasper, played by Michael Caine, his reaction to this world, has: he's shutting himself off by using drugs to to numb himself from from emotion, and he's always high, and he's always distracting himself from the problems of the world. Nigel, who played by Danny Houston, who is uh, Theo's cousin in the film, and he's... He's a wealthy bureaucrat who spends his time saving and restoring and protecting the world's most famous pieces of art. And his viewpoint is he doesn't even think about the conflicts and the crises. He doesn't even think about the future of humanity. He's living in the past. That's why he's preserving this art because he lives in history and all he cares about is what happened before. And he's distracting himself from from the realities of the future can bring. And the irony of his character is... The, hu- the human race is about to be extinct. It's going to be extinct in one lifetime. And he's spending all of his time. Just in- It makes him very wealthy. He clearly lives very well off compared to m- most people in the world. He spends all his time restoring things that will never be appreciated again. Despite how beautiful the art is. Danny Houston's character Nigel is an example of how Koran uses a, a great amount of uh, art symbolism in this film to portray ideas. For example, in Nigel's... Dining room. He has Pablo Picasso's painting Guernica, which, is, uh, which Picasso made in response to General Franco's bombing of Guernica, Spain, which killed 1,600 civilians. And there's also uh, a giant floating blimp uh, in the shape of a pig outside of Nigel's uh, building. And this is a reference to Pink Floyd's album cover for Animals, which was based about based upon the Orwellian novel about Stalin's rule over Russia. Um, as a communist dictator and there's also a lot of uh, famous Banksy's you've seen throughout the film and Banksy is obviously an artist who uses uh, his art to depict social activism and and display uh, themes of social justice and when Key reveals her pregnant belly to Theo she her pose is identical to this famous painting of the birth of Venus which uh, is uh, about the fertility of mankind Uh, Quaran uses art Throughout the film to translate the ideas he's, he's uh, showing with the story in a brilliant way And this film has an incredible plot of Theo smuggling the first pregnant woman in 20 years away from the government And away from these underground organizations into the human project to help cure the infertility crisis So it's a sensational world that Koran's built and it's an incredible plot that this, the author and these, these writers came up with And there's also a lot of religious symbolism in this film in terms of uh, Theo is, you can say, is comparable to Joseph uh, because he's not the father of the baby, but he acts as the a father figure and a protector of the baby. And Key is comparable to Mary. Um, and the baby, Dylan, is uh, essentially Jesus. And Key is the key to the future. Her name is just imperfectly given. Mm-hmm. And adver- tell in the movie's advertising tells you why. Uh, she's aptly named. What happens is Theo... Is convinced to help Julianne Moore's character Julian and her organization smuggle key out of the country to somewhere else to that project. This is one of my favorite. Uh, she would tell Ezio Ford performances. This is one of his major first roles roles as an actor, and I think he plays a great villain in this film, and uh, it showed his talent as an actor. Yeah, and so he's part of this this organization that Julian is the leader of, and we have this infamous car one take where. It's Julian, Theo, Key, and Miriam, the the midwife who's helping, and Luke, and Luke, who's in the midwife. Miriam is taking care of of Key in her pregnancy, and Kuran wanted to make this this amazing scene with one take inside the car with a camera. But the problem is, you can't put a film crew in this in this van with character actors as well. There's no space at all for a camera. So Emmanuel Lubezki he came up with this incredible rig to help fulfill Coran's vision where they basically cut the roof off of this van and they had this incredibly remote operated camera system that moved around fluidly inside the car with the characters. Yeah, it was, a, the it, it was above them. Yeah, and the the director and Koran and Lubeski actually s- sat above the car in this little chamber and they controlled the camera movements and what was going on and It allowed them to capture Koran's vision where he wanted this long take with so much going on I mean they're they're driving down this road and there's people chasing after them and slamming on the windows There's five characters in the car four characters in the car And he's getting close-up shots of each one of them and what's happening next And this camera rig It just moves around fluidly throughout the car getting wide shots close-ups We get to see what's happening outside the outside the windows and he's he said he would would have had to have Succumbed to using green screen and CGI, but you really can't get the the real effect that. You can see of people running up to the car and the woods and the trees and mm-hmm. the sky, and it's just an incredible scene. And along with the camera that moved fluidly above the actors, the seats that the actors were sitting in, they also moved out of the way of the camera as the camera um, position as the camera moved towards them to get a shot of another actor. That actor's chair would move back to give space for the camera, and then it would move back, and then it would move back into the car when they were on frame. So the entire car itself was this rig that. Uh, manipulated every part of the car in order to get this shot. And this shot was made with not just a, exactly one single take, but I think it was six different shots that were blended together digitally. And this leads to this incredible, incredibly moving scene where Julian gets shot through the windshield. And it's absolutely heartbreaking as an audience member because she was just, you learn that she had a relationship with Theo and they had lost a child and they. They had a connection still and that ping pong ball trick, which was super fun and cute to see them do and just leads to her death right there, which means that they don't really know what's going to happen now with the organization because she was the leader. She was in charge and it unfortunately leads to the scenes where we learn that Luke led this entire uh, coup basically of Julian and assassinated her to get control of of Key and her pregnancy to use it. For his revolution and use it as like a he wants to use the baby as like a power play because julian wants to bring the baby to the human project but luke wants to take it and keep it within the organization as a way to to gain power from the government and right before julian actually gets shot there's in that in the car Miriam is actually peeling an orange and quran pays homage to the godfather in this film and whenever someone's eating an orange or there's an orange on camera it means impending doom or death for a character in the film and it's, it's pretty emotional when you see it And if you watch it again on, and, you, and you haven't noticed that You can pick up on it happening multiple times in the film Yeah, it's, a, it's an unbelievable scene And the first time you see it, it's absolutely breathtaking And this leads to Julian taking them the only place he knows that's safe And that's Jasper's house Jasper is one of my favorite Michael Caine performances ever You've never seen him play a character like this uh, a, a weed-smoking hippie uh, Political activist And he adds a lot of comedy and personality to the film and He's instantly lovable, and I think he's just, he steals the show every scene he's in. He actually based his performance on John Lennon, who he says he was friends with, and he did a terrific job. He even looks like him. He's got the long hair, <laughs> the beard. He's even got those round glasses. He oh, sounds yeah. like him. He did like that very John Lennon nasally voice and his mannerisms. And Jasper, even though, like you said, he secluded himself away from everything, he's kind of like a ray of positivity and a ray of hope that we hadn't seen for quite some time in the film. So he brings a lot of color to the movie. And like we said earlier, Jasper is a person, and his reaction to the world is he just numbs himself with drugs, and and he's always smoking weed, and just just he's constantly high. It seems. And also, him and his wife. This storyline shows the ways in which uh, the world itself is reacting to this, to the the conflicts and this illusion of humanity. And for example, the quietest drug, which. Is a company that uh, provides a drug Which allows you to kill yourself uh, Peacefully And it's actually just like a, a prescribed drug in their commercials for it on television And it's this incredibly uh, Dark concept that A government approved drug to kill yourself Is a commonplace thing in this world And also They have a cat uh, as a pet And one of the Themes in this film It's its hidden in the background Again, Quran puts so much in this movie Without actually putting it in your face It's all it's all there, but you have to really look for it, is uh, animals are are used by humans in this world as surrogates for children, and pets are more common than ever before in humanity. And there are even commercials on the televisions depicting ads for clothing lines for pets and all sorts of products for pets because pets have become so important to people as surrogates for children. And just to keep going on that, there's the deer in the in the elementary school, which I think I think the, the elementary school has one of the most beautiful shots in the film, and obviously we see that deer, which represents the children inside elementary school who aren't there, and it's a shot where Theo and Miriam are in a classroom. They're just surrounded by darkness and rubble of this classroom, and they're looking out the windows at Key, who's out on, I think she's on a swing, sitting down on a swing, and she's just basked in this glowing light of this window, and Quran geniusly has a piece of the window broken out and this hole in the window is what frames key outside and she's just basking in this like heavenly glow in this heavenly light and also right next to key in the window is a car uh construction paper drawing of a child attached to the wall and then we look to the right of the frame and it's theo and miriam again standing in darkness and rubble and they're they're living in this this desperate world in this they're, the end of of that civilization is there, and they're living in the past, and they're stuck there. Whereas Key is live, living in this light, and she's the future of humanity. And she's full of hope, and she's full of potential, and she's basically sort of this godlike figure, or this or this bringer of life to the world. And Key, in her representation of hope, is what uh, helps pretty much save and transform Theo as a character. Where uh, when he sees Key's pregnant belly, he he understands the importance of the situation and he's inspired to to put his life on the line to, to help get Key across the border. And she instills new hope in him. And his character completely changes from this hopeless, nihilistic man in the opening of the film to a person who's willing to die for something greater than himself. And it's quite the twist when we learn that Luke, in this, at this little uh, community that they have in these little ranches, that uh, Luke's hired that a hit on Julian again, and even there's so much realism in this film and so much tension that Koron builds. And I think one of my favorite parts of this movie is when they escape from Luke and the others. Yeah, the and they're farmhouse. in the car at the farmhouse with, and they can't get the car to start And they're rolling it down the hill, and just Charlie Hunnam is just huffing and puffing, <laughs> sprinting down the hill, and he's really sprinting. He's running real fast. That guy looks like a good athlete. And it's just so much tension when they get to the bottom of the hill and trying to start the car and and. Quran basically creates this the entire film this immense tension all leading to one singular moment at the end of the film it's an amazing sequence where the the shot starts with Theo looking out the door of the farmhouse and and it leads to with him avoiding the henchmen watching guard and then powering the car and pushing it down the hill and it's an amazing sequence in and but it's still nothing compared to the the final action sequence where it's pretty much them running through the war-torn war zone and, and moving through the actual gunfight battle between the soldiers and uh, Luke's terrorist organization. and, and it's, it's one of the most astounding sequences ever put on film. And I remember my jaw dropped the first time I saw it. It was so so incredible. And this is not like the car sequence where quaron blended together different shots digitally. This really is one take that they shot without any digital editing at all. And there's another great one take before that where Key gives birth and this little Romanian woman helps them get into this little room and they have like, I think they have just a mattress and a couple of blankets. And Theo has to help Key give birth to the first human being ever born in 20 years and it's incredibly emotional and and moving scene and that leads to them moving on to try to get to... The human project. And back to that incredible ending action sequence, Long Take, where they're inside the building and they're in the middle of this raging war between the soldiers and and the revolters and it's key is carrying a child, an infant, and a baby in these buildings with soldiers everywhere, gunfire everywhere, explosions, and it's the babies crying and screaming that stops the firefight. It stops the soldiers, and they're all just Blown away, and they can't even—they're speechless—as they allow Key and Theo to walk out of that building before it gets destroyed, and walk past them. And then the the crazy thing is, after they walk past them, the firefight begins again. It's a really incredible moment, and they're all awestruck because no one's seen a baby in eighteen years, and no one's heard a, the cries of a baby in so long, and and it's just a powerful moment to show. Uh, what this baby means to humanity where it, it stopped a war it stopped a firefight just from from existing and and it's a, it's a, one of the best moments of the film and this is where Theo and and Key they very much are symbolisms for Mary and Joseph and they're protecting Jesus and and as Joseph he's he's a protector for these two in the Holy Family, and they make it to that boat before that. I think they call it an airstrike that's about to hit. Mm -hmm. So you have to get out of there, and they make it to the boat. And it's an incredibly beautiful scene where, as Theo's dying, because he uh, got a mortally fatal wound during the firefight protecting Key, he's showing her how to burp the baby. He's Mm -hmm. like, put her, just put her on your shoulder. and He teaches her how to burp a baby because she doesn't know how to burp a baby. She's never seen a baby before. And Theo dies protecting Key and the baby and getting them to the boat to be rescued by the Human Project. And it's almost as if, um, because after this, uh, she's alone on the boat, but then she can see the light of uh, the Human Project's boat in the distance, so she's going to be saved by the Human Project. And it's almost as if uh, the, the real story hasn't begun yet. Uh, like, it, this just sets the stage for uh, the future of humanity. You know what I mean? I think Quran shows that by ending the film with the laughter and voices of children in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an unbelievable film, and I think that this really is one of the masterpieces of the last twenty years. Uh, easily one of the best movies of the twenty first century for sure. And I it I just think that people weren't ready for uh, a film that was so so deep and 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 plausible and, and real. Yeah, and it just it had so much to say. And I think that people didn't understand it, and they weren't able to uh, to digest how much Quaran put into this movie and how much meaning it has, but now I think as time has worn on, people understand that this is a real significant piece of film. The final film in the episode is Snowpiercer, released in 2013, directed by Bong Joon-ho, written by Bong Joon-ho and Kelly Masterson, based on the French graphic novel Les Transpensées. This film had a budget of $39 million and a global box office of $86 million. In a future where a failed climate change experiment has killed all life except for the lucky few who boarded the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around the globe, a new class system emerges. This film stars Chris Evans, Jamie Bell, Song Kang-ho, Ed Harris, John Hurt, Tilda Swinton, and Octavia Spencer. I love the idea of this movie where in a failed attempt to cool the planet from global warming, the scientists plan backfired and turned the entire planet into basically a frozen wasteland wiping out the majority of the human civilization and this genius engineer Wilford built this train that circled the entire globe until the temperature warmed in society could be, begin to rebuild Bong Joon-ho often throws uh, social and political and environmental themes into his films like for example uh, the host which came out i think in 2006 and then with obviously with parasite Um, In terms of social class And he does the same with with this Where he combines uh, climate themes Along with socio-political themes And the the train itself provides a a perfect opportunity To show uh, the different structures within uh, a social hierarchy And uh, I think that he is a filmmaker Who isn't too um, pretentious In terms of how he talks about ideas and, And themes within the world And I think that this film is a fantastic way to talk about those ideas. Yeah, it's a direct reflection on our society and what greed really can do to human beings in many ways. Um, Not just greed for for money, but also greed for power. Um, The class structure shown on the train as we follow Curtis is shocking. And the back of the train is full of the lowest class of human beings that have been Created on this train, this this low, in this low class of human beings are also turned against each other, which is very common in, in low class societies today. And they resort to cannibalism when desperate, are punished for any vocal tra- digressions. And they really only have one sole purpose, kind of like Max, in Mad Max, to survive. And the great irony of the film is that the rich need the lower class people in order to survive, despite the way they treat them, which we'll get into later on. And they receive horrible punishments, like their arms get frozen and, and broken off, and they're separated from their families. Children are basically treated like cattle and stolen from from mothers and fathers, and they're forced to only eat this same kind of protein block. It's like this gelatin protein block that we end up learning is uh, created using uh, insects. I think one of the main themes of this movie is uh, the power of fear, similar to Immortan Joe and Mad Max, where Wilford and the train the, and the higher classes of the train. They use fear to instill uh, discipline and and to instill um, conformity within the lower classes of the train. And the only, the only reason they're able to rebel is because uh, Chris Evans' character, Curtis, realizes that there's nothing to be afraid of because they have no more bullets left. Yeah, and so Gilliam, played by John Hurt, kind of gives Curtis this idea and this belief that they can lead a revolt and they can take over the train, what they have to do is get to the engine room and they have to go compartment to compartment to get there. And this is this wild journey that we're on with Curtis and Jamie Bill and the others where we're we're seeing this class system, the structure that has been created based on um superiority in terms of wealth or superiority in terms of power and obviously the front of the train or the controller of the train is Wilford, who we don't really know much about besides the fact that he's basically worshipped like a god on this train. He's turned himself into a god, and you know, the kids learn about him in the classroom, and he's, he's created this ecosystem for survival for all the human beings despite what class system they're in. And the ironic thing is that Wilford and the people in the higher class, they think that they're doing um, the lower class a favor by allowing them to live. They think that that the the lower class like owes them their um their, their loyalty you know what I mean and again it's it's the lower class people that they need to survive to keep the train going and the idea is that there the train has a closed ecosystem in that it, it needs to be like this there they, not everyone can be equal or else the ecosystem wouldn't work out and we end up learning that uh, throughout the, the history of the train uh Wilford has carried out various attacks and assaults on the lower class in order to reduce their numbers as a way to keep the ecosystem uh, alive and thriving. And if there are too many people on the train, then the ecosystem doesn't work and it causes uh, it risks the lives of everyone on the train. And so the lower class citizens are always viewed as expendable um, for the good of the ecosystem. And because there have been so many attacks on the lower-class citizens and in in that Wilford's had to stop so many revolutions, Curtis realizes that the guards have no ammunition, which means they really have no power over them. There's nothing to fear, which allows them to be able to to overcome the guards. And again, with numbers, strength in numbers, they they, they have they really have the power in this film, which again, we saw that in A Bug's Life, where mm. they didn't realize that they had the power despite the grasshoppers having control over them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's actually very similar. And uh, one of my favorite parts about this movie is obviously Tilda Swinton's character, Mason, who uh, she's such a great actress and a character actor. And Mason was originally written to be a man. And Bong Joon-ho couldn't find an actor that he really, really felt was right for the role. And then he met with Tilda Swinton and and she seemed perfect for the role. And she she adds so much color and and. Uh, charisma to the role and every character she's played in her career couldn't be more different from the other and she's obviously the highlight acting wise of this movie and even though she's a a woman uh, many of the guards still refer to her her in masculine forms like sir and 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 mister and i think that uh, she's easily the most uh, interesting character in the entire film i agree and the train itself Reminds me of redlining in terms of the structure that's created and redlining is a systemic denial of various services by federal government agencies, local governments, uh, either or through the selective raising of prices uh, for specific areas of cities. And a lot of cities are actually built this way to help uh, to create uh, lower class systems and lower class neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods and disadvantaged disadvantaged people, which is basically what happens to an ext- in an extreme level on this train. Yeah, and also redlining prevents um, young young kids from being able to attend schools in other districts and other neighborhoods. Uh, They make it a law where you you can only go to the public school in in the county in which you live. So it prevents young people from uh, ever developing the opportunities other young kids have who live in better areas. And so in that scene in the film where the children that are born in the back of the train, they have no futures. And the children that are born on the in the front of the train, they go to school and they're educated, and and they are obviously given a, a better opportunity just just based upon their births. And of course, there are rare instances of you know jumping social class and succeeding uh, well in life. But generally, in class systems and in, in intense class systems in the world, if you're in a class, it's almost impossible to change that and to move up the ranks into different classes unless you're you know lucky and you work incredibly hard those are there are obviously plenty of stories of people who grew up very impoverished and became very successful people but this this train it's virtually impossible to do that and that is actually very much relevant in South Korea which is why Bong Joon-ho often uh, throws those themes into his films and it's it's most uh, uh known for his film *Parasite*, the differences in social class and class structure, and how one family uh, has everything and lives a very comfortable life, whereas the other family, no matter what they've done in their lives, there's there's no way they will ever be able to get out of that that half basement apartment they live underground. And and uh, Bong Joon Ho is is trying to illustrate the idea that uh, that oftentimes for Various cultures around the world, the the system is rigged for for people who live in lower classes. And if a society or the society of incredibly uh, strict class structures and the top five percent, like on this train, have basically trapped the rest of the population in a system that they can't rise from, and the severe inequality on this train, in because of that, the only option is revolution. And that's why Gilliam devises that plan to revolt and take control of the engine room using Curtis as the leader. Yeah, and you can actually compare it to the civil rights movement in America where back in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, the, the, the social classes were very uh, uh, very much uh, in the favor of, of whites and, and black citizens uh, it found it extremely difficult to jump social structures and redlining was not illegal back then, so it prevented black people from being able to move into suburban areas and, and black people as citizens were, were restricted with how they could, with the opportunities they had in life, and it wasn't until the civil rights movement and... The and, elimination of Jim Crow. Yeah, elimination of Jim Crow and and the rebellious nature of, of the idea that uh, all humans are created equal and deserve an equal opportunity, um, then black citizens were able to flourish in America. And also what's happening in this film is that uh, everyone believes that the Ice Age will never end, uh, when in fact Nam-Gung and his daughter... Um, they recognize the city outside of the windows, and that is very important because usually in the past, you they haven't been able to see anything from all the snow and ice that's covered the cities, but now there are actual landmarks that are visible, which means that the ice is actually melting. And Namgun is basically the security expert who's I think he's asleep on the train yeah they have to wake up and they have to help them to move up compartment to compartment and be able to take over the engine room yeah him and his daughter have been um asleep um and the they they had been given the, the drug cronol, um which uh subdues people and and pretty much keeps them unconscious and when they're woken up they find themselves extremely addicted to Cronol and we throughout the course of the film they will literally do anything to get their hands on this drug Which also, ironically, is uh, extremely flammable. Yeah, and so they move compartment to compartment. And we see these beautiful compartments in this hierarchy, again, of social structure and social class. And we see this Garden of Eden. We see this improbable aquarium. We see a classroom. A sushi sushi restaurant? Yeah, they have hairstylists. They have everything. If you're you're an upper-class citizen, you have all the luxuries that you had in the previous world. It's disturbing to see the way that some people are living compared to the people in the back and the tail end of the train, and how they really have no empathy for those people in the back. So, how can so few live with so much while so many live with so little? And it's actually a theme across the entire globe, and so many third world nations where the vast majority of the populations live in poverty. It's because uh, those in power are corrupt, and and the governments and the systems themselves are corrupt and keep the money from the people and. Uh, something similar has happened in this train where uh, the few in power have taken control uh, of all the money and all the resources of, of the train. Yeah, I think there's a big debate in terms of, is this film tackling the nature of capitalism or is it tackling the nature of politics? I think it's a little bit of both because ultimately it's, you know, the politicians who create the rules for our society, they create laws. And it's also, you know, capitalists and capitalism coerces politicians and they help, create the systems that we're living in so i think it's many aspects of both create inequality in the world so i think it's a combination of capitalism and politi- and politics that that bong chun ho is trying to show and also i think uh the morality of 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 humans plays a part in that in terms of uh the people making these decisions and the people who take advantage of power when they come into the the power and it uh, it takes an immoral person to take advantage of the the weakest in society. And there are so many people in power across the world that really do take advantage of the weak and the poor and the impoverished to their own benefit and their own gain. And this film has incredible action sequences for being on a train in, in such confined spaces. I mean, I love the, the brawl in, in that compartment that's completely dark that's all all night vision. It's really cool, like a first-person look at this, this fight. And then also... We, the classroom scene with, with a shootout in there where the teacher is actually armed too, and it's just incredible, and, and it blows your mind, and it's unexpected. Yeah, that big fight between the, the rebellious uh, faction and, and the officers is great, and uh, it, and when they close the windows and the entire scene is only lit by the torches, they actually... Uh, on set during the production, they didn't use any other lighting aside from the actual flames from the torches. So that's all practical lighting. And it's a, it's a combination of beautiful and terrifying and disturbing because it gets pretty gory and the action is really intense. And it's it all, it gets tragic because Edgar ends up being killed by one of the, by one of the henchmen because Curtis is given the difficult option of either going after Mason and and not allowing her to escape or saving Edgar's life. And he chooses, uh, Mason and and allows Edgar to be executed Yeah, and It shows you that Curtis is willing to do anything to achieve his goal, to make it to the engine room, to get control of the train, which he eventually does, and he, we finally get to meet Wilford, who's played so well by Ed Harris, who's a fantastic actor, and again, Wilford has created himself into this god he's the engineer of this train He he creates this ecosystem, he's created life for all these people and I think Gilliam in the film tells Curtis that The first thing he should do is to cut out uh, Wilford's tongue so that he doesn't coerce him into not killing him and not taking over the train. But what Wilford does, which he should have done because what Wilford does is he explains that Gilliam was in on this plan of revolution the entire time, which I think you have to kind of take with a grain of salt because, yes, you can believe that, but maybe that's a way of Wilford trying to coerce um, Curtis to give up. Or to, to not kill him too at the same time because why would Gilliam a person who's you know sacrificed limbs for other people and and lived back there for 18 years and want to want to uh, take over the train and why would he why would he want to work with Wilford? Well, Wilford says that he Gilliam works with him because Gilliam understands that uh, overpopulation would would mean the, the the death of everyone on the back of the train, and so I think he and Gilliam had this understanding and also Wilford. Uh, the entire world thought he was crazy when he was building the train because he foresaw uh, a, a, a apocalyptic future, and that's why he built the train. And I think that he he's he's high on this um, godlike mentality because he proved that he was right and that the entire world was wrong. So he thinks he's better than everyone else. And this is terrifying scene where Wilford's talking about how there are cons to every class on the train, and and no one has it perfect. As he's eating his steak and potatoes in front of Curtis, who also has a plate of steak and potatoes in front of him, but he's just looking at it with the stuck. And he's looking at it with disgust, and this is where Wolford offers Curtis control of the train and control of of his position. And we also discover here that the children are being used to to keep the train operating. That's why I meant earlier that the the wealthy and the powerful they need the lower class citizens. To survive, they need the lower class citizens to keep producing children to be able to operate the train to make sure it doesn't crash. And seeing children uh, working in the engine as slaves is, is the turning point for for Curtis to to decide to destroy the entire system because he almost was going he to was, succumb he was to the very, power. He was very close to succumbing to the power until he saw that his own people were being abused to uh, allow the train to keep going. So then he realized that the the train should stop. It need everything. The entire uh, idea of the train needs to come to an end, and that's when he causes the destruction of the of the train. Yeah, and he actually uses his arm to stop the train and the engine. It's it's the symbolic moment because in the beginning of the film, Chris says, um, he says he can't lead because he still has his arm, and later we understand that's because people in the back had been giving up limbs willingly. As Food for people when they were starving and Curtis is one of the people who wouldn't do that So in a way having your arm intact or having all your limbs was sort of looked at as being a little selfish Also Curtis and the other older men almost ate a very young Edgar when he was a child, but Gilliam Sacrificed his arm to them rather than letting him them eat Edgar and so Curtis uses his arm to stop the engine and finally repay that debt he had to to put an end in a conclusion to the revolution. Yeah, and that causes the pl- that plus the, uh Kronol that Mangung uh, sets up causes the train to collapse and and crash within to crash into the mountainside of the frozen tundra. And the only two people that survive are the two young children, uh, Yanni and uh, Yanni and the little boy. And when they exit the train, uh, yes, there's a still a frozen tundra, but they see a polar bear in the distance, and the polar bear just looks at them for a moment and then walks away, and then they realize that there is actually life uh, on the frozen tundra, and the the temperature is warming. Yeah, and Bong Joon says that um, he confirmed that they survived and ended up repopulating the Earth, but I, I also think you can also look at this ending in a, in a more um, fun way where— I think you can also view the ending of this film as the extinction of the human race. Like, how are these two young people who've, you know, never survived in the wilderness before, especially in a freezing environment? I mean, obviously the ice is thawing, but it's still a tundra. It's still a frozen atmosphere. Yeah. It's still a frozen environment. Um, they have no supplies. They're walking away from the perfect shelter, and they're walking away from supplies and sh- and everything. So they, they that thing was stocked full of food. I mean, it didn't completely blow up. Yeah. Um. Not to mention, I'm sure that polar bear is going to get hungry at some point. And so, <laughs> I think it's the class structure on the train created the inevitable end of the world for human beings. Yeah. So I think Bong Jun Ho is saying that some kind this kind of uh, unfair structure will lead to the collapse of civilization. But I think it's a great ending, and uh, obviously you can look at it as either hopeful or um, full of despair. Um, but either way you look at it, uh, this movie is, this movie is terrific and very unique in its own. And I I think it's fun to talk about the ending too, because obviously I think some people wish that Curtis just took over control of the train. Where if Curtis you know became the leader of the train, he would still continue that hierarchy on the train because you know we're dealing with this this train that's constantly in this loop in this circle which is a symbol for the entire film where regardless of whoever at the is at the top the hierarchy will continue because he would probably reverse the roles where the people in the back of the train would come to the front and the people who are in the front of the train will have to go to the back because they have to to pay for their transgressions against the society but also if he continues operating the train he's still going to need little kids to work the engine with their little hands so he's always going to need to take little children from their parents to to keep the engine running. So it will never end. And so really the only way to end this oppression is to just destroy the train and basically annihilate human beings, which is kind of what happens. I guess it's better to to die than to let this continue on. Bong Joon-ho often clashed with producer Harvey Weinstein on this film, especially in terms of the scene with the aquarium where Weinstein thought it was a, a dumb scene and he wanted more action. And so he wanted to get get rid of the scene altogether but Bong Joon-ho told him that he needed the aquarium scene because his father was a fisherman who died and he the whole scene was a, a calling card to his father and so Weinstein agreed okay you can keep the film in because it's important and family matters and then Bong Joon-ho later revealed that he lied to Weinstein and his dad never was a fisherman. Snowpiercer if you've never seen it it's a sensational film from Bong Joon-ho um, obviously, Parasite is probably his masterpiece and or his best movie so far. But Snowpiercer is a really fun time. It's a really unique film. And he, he did an incredible service to the original material. Agreed. This is a, a fantastic uh, dystopian film. And everyone should watch it. It's on Netflix. Check it out. That's it for episode 42 of Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel on YouTube and hit the notification bell wherever you're listening to us on audio streaming platforms and follow us there as well as supporting us on Patreon, using all of our coupon codes to get all those great offers and discounts for your holiday shopping this season. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. Join one of those tiers. Help us build this set even more. Yeah, We, we want to get some more stuff. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Bye.